0: Let's go to our loving Heavenly Father in prayer together. God, what a joy it is to be with these people today. I pray, God, that you would give us all eyes to see, to see your beauty today. Give us a vision of the glorious Savior, our Savior Jesus Christ that in Him our hearts would be satisfied. In Him we would find all the greatest pleasures we were made to enjoy. In Him we would have the wisdom to judge rightly, to live wisely. Amen. What is the most popular Bible verse in our country? The the one verse that all of America seems to know whether they're a believer or a non-believer. It's this one verse that many people think summarizes the entire Bible. Even non-believers point to this verse as a great nugget of wisdom and truth. Entire churches and ministries built on the foundation of this one verse. No, it's not John 3.16, for God so loved the world He gave His only Son. How I wish we could all unify around that truth. Instead, I'm talking about Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge lest you be judged. In our postmodern, relativistic, individualistic, follow-your-heart culture, the highest virtue is don't judge me. The greatest crime that you can commit in our society is making someone feel bad. You're not allowed to look at someone's life and the decisions they make and make any judgments about their behavior. This really doesn't make any sense. This whole concept of modern tolerance is quite self-contradictory. How can everybody be right at the same time? How can you have two completely opposing ideas? and both of them be affirmed as true. And you can't really say that there's no such thing as an absolute standard of judgment, because by saying that, you're making an absolute judgment. So this whole system that we're living in collapses upon itself. But not only is the concept of not judging at all completely unsustainable, it's quite unbiblical as well. People cling to this verse, don't judge, or you too will be judged as the foundation of their system, but the verse actually means quite the opposite of what they are hoping it does. So let's try to straighten out our understanding of this text together. In Matthew chapter 7, we'll read verses 1 through 6. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. Everyone already must have their Bibles turned to it because I don't hear pages flipping. (laughs) Matthew 7, 1 through 6, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure that you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? When there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy. and Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's just get it out of the way right up front. This verse is not an endorsement of our culture's postmodern flavor of tolerance, which says that you can't judge anyone else because what's true for them is true for them, whether it's true for you or not. I can't believe I even said that. So many people read this text and hear, don't judge or you're going to get judged yourself. As if to say, if you avoid judging other people, then you will avoid judgment in your life. But think about the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just spent two chapters expounding on the law, about the certainty and extent of God's perfect justice. Chapter 6 was all about hypocrisy and how the hypocrites will be exposed. And Jesus says the primary way of confronting and correcting such hypocrisy is to keep your eyes on Christ, on the perfection of God, the one who sees everything that's done in secret. So let's be clear. Everyone is going to stand before God's throne and give an account for every word spoken, every thought that passes through your mind, every action. There's no avoiding it. There's no avoiding God's judgment, even if you are the most unjudgy person in the world. Quite the opposite of our culture's relativistic understanding of this text. The point of Matthew 7, verse 1, is to reset our eyes on the coming judgment. To be sure our hearts are right with God before we think we can ever correct someone else's life. So this isn't really a command not to judge at all, It's a command to judge according to God's wisdom, with eyes and hearts set on God's perfect righteousness. So, our main idea for today's message is wise judgment is only possible with eyes set upon the wise judge. Wise judgment is only possible with eyes set upon the wise judge. We'll break this text into three parts to focus on that main idea. First, in verses one and two, we take a look at motives for judgment. What are our motives when we seek to correct other people? And then in verses three through five, we'll determine whether we even have appropriate sight to see correctly into someone else's life. And then finally, verse six, ask if we have the authority to make such judgments. So our three parts are correct motives for judgment, then correct sight for judgment, and then correct authority for judgment. So let's go back to the text in verses 1 and 2. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So what does it mean to judge? Well, we humans make judgments all the time. That's what we do. It's part of how God made us. Another way to speak of judging is to make decisions, to discern, to choose, to decide or determine or come to a conclusion. We are rational, logical beings made to examine the world, look all around us, and then come to a conclusion with the information that we perceive. And we're moral beings with an internal sense of right and wrong helping guide us, a conscience given to us to guide us through this life, making wise judgments. Additionally, God made us to have dominion over all the earth. He put humanity in charge over everything, which requires us to judge what's good and what's bad. Judging is a part of what it means to be human. And some of the verses that are to follow verse 1, suggests that we are going to come to some conclusions about right and wrong, about who's a hypocrite and a dog and a pig. So it doesn't really make any sense to say that Jesus is commanding us not to judge at all. So if, but if that's the case, then what is he commanding here? Well, as he has done so far in the first couple of chapters of his sermon, he's applying the law of the Old Testament to the heart of his hearers. He's addressing the motives behind judgment. So the law that he might have in mind right now is Leviticus 19, verse 35, which uses the exact same language of judgment and measures. But the context of that, the imagery of that law is the marketplace where someone has a table set out with all of their goods, and on their table they have a scale. And someone comes up and says, well, I would like to buy two grams of oil assuming they used the international system of measurement. And so you put some oil on one side of the scale and you put the two gram weight on the other side to measure out how much oil you have. But someone who is unjust in their dealings might say they're putting the two gram weight on there when it's really the one gram weight. So they're selling... Good. I have magic powers, I guess. (laughs) So these people would lie with their unequal weights and measures, telling people or in order to get prosperity by lying and cheating. And Proverbs says, in multiple places. These unequal weights and measures. These unjust scales are an abomination to the Lord. But here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is applying that same concept of unequal weights and measures to the heart. He's commanding us not to heap judgment upon others with an unequal expectation on other people. The Pharisees were experts at this. They really knew their law well, and they would go around thinking to themselves, oh, that person is breaking that law, and that person is breaking that law, never once considering their own stand before God's throne. Their pronouncements of judgment upon others were actually a way of shifting attention away from themselves. They would hold up the mirror of the law facing away, Look at yourself in the mirror of God's judgment, in the mirror of God's law, without ever actually turning it around upon themselves. So verse 1 could be paraphrased, don't judge others in order to keep the eyes of judgment away from yourself. I think that the NIV translation is a little unfortunate and lends to our cultural misunderstanding. The NIV says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Suggesting that all judgment is bad and our own judgment is the ground for someone else's judgment or for our judgment. Our judgment of others is the ground for judgment against us. But that's not what Jesus is saying. The way the words are constructed actually suggest a negative purpose. Say don't judge in order to not get judged yourself. Because eventually the mirror of the law will be turned back against you. There is no hiding from God's judgment. We're all guilty in some way or another of this blame shifting. We know what's right and wrong, and our consciences often convict us, leaving us with these feelings of guilt and shame, and we don't know what to do about it so often. And our natural tendency, then, is to start pointing out the fault of others. We deflect the shame to others, projecting our own fears and insecurities upon others, holding them to a higher standard than we hold ourselves to, getting angry that they aren't doing their work because we it makes us feel better about our own lack of holiness. When we pronounce judgment in this way, our motives are disordered, and we need our eyes fixed. We need our hearts changed so we can see properly and give wise judgment. So that's the emphasis of the second part in verses 3 through 5. Let's look at those again. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how do you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So commentators suggest that Jesus is using imagery from his carpentry workshop. He grew up the son of a carpenter, spent a lot of time in the wood shop learning how to build things out of wood. So this imagery kind of gives us a real feel that I'm sure many of you have experienced if you're not even working in a wood shop, you've gotten some particle in your eye, and it's really annoying. It's not so, it does, not so painful that you can't continue to do things, but it's so frustrating, you can't get it out. It's so small that you can't even find it in your eye. Looking in the mirror going, it's in there somewhere, but it's just so frustrating. So some guy gets a piece of sawdust in his eye in the wood shop. And then his buddy, who's working on the other side of the woodshop, turns around and says, hey, let me help you out, and swings around with this big giant log sticking out of his face. (laughs) The word that Jesus uses for log quite literally means a beam used in construction that would hold up the roof of a house. Admittedly, the imagery is quite ridiculous, but Jesus does that on purpose to really emphasize his point, this statement about his hearers. The tricky thing about these verses is that it's difficult to tell who Jesus is talking to. He's labeling people dogs and pigs. He's calling people hypocrites. There's mention of brothers in there. So there's kind of this back and forth. Who is he talking to? It's difficult to tell in our modern English translations, because we've abandoned these and thous and yees and yows. It seemed appropriate. But there is a little bit of a change here between verses two and three of how Jesus uses the word you. In the first two verses, it's a plural you, you all, y'all for any of you. Southern people. Do we have any people from the South? So I never have to say y'all again. But, and then we get to verse 3, and it's a singular you, as though he's speaking generally to everybody, this principle about checking your motives when you judge. And then he narrows his focus on one particular person, or maybe one little group of people out of this whole collection of people on the mountainside. So, I think in verses 1 and 2, he's saying this general principle for everybody to hear, but then he narrows in in verse 3 on a particular problem that is exhibited by a small group of people. And who has received the brunt of Jesus' criticism so far in his sermon? Who has he called hypocrites over and over but the scribes and the Pharisees? So, what do the speck and the log represent? their amount of guilt under the law. They're symbolic of how much guilt somebody holds. And he says, all these people, the scribes and Pharisees are walking around condemning have just a little speck of guilt compared to the log-sized burden that they themselves carry. They have this habit of walking around pointing out the guilt of others so that nobody will notice how guilty they themselves are. Jesus is sarcastically condemning the scribes and Pharisees. Yes, Jesus uses sarcasm. And all you sarcastic people rejoice and say amen. Jesus says that the li- religious leaders are the ones with the log in their eye, the huge burden of guilt. They think they're experts in the law. They think it's their responsibility to be wandering around all the land of Israel pointing out how everyone is failing to keep the law. They are the ones that need to make sure Israel stays faithful to God. Correcting all those dirty, ignorant peasants of society. But even though they know the law deeply, they seem to be completely unaware of how badly they themselves have broken it. Those with... Greater knowledge will be held to a stricter judgment, and because of that, these religious leaders carry a huge burden of guilt, but still think they have sight to correct everyone else. Ironically, they're the ones who need eye surgery more than anybody else. This giant log protruding from their eye prevents them from exacting correct, wise judgment upon others. These experts in the law, they know the law so well, but they can't see that all of the law pointed to the lawgiver who's standing right in front of them. They are blind. Which is where what Jesus said over and over in the last chapter, reminding us of this sight imagery. Where what we gaze upon reveals what our hearts treasure. He told us to keep our eyes on the heavenly treasure, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Yet in our natural state, we are born blind with a log sticking out of our face. We need eye surgery just as much as the scribes and Pharisees do. Before we're ever able to correct anybody else's life, we need to get right before God and have him remove our own blindness. Before we can judge the actions of others, we must first realize that we ourselves stand under the judgment of God. Guilty sinners condemned for our own breaking of the law. Can you imagine some guilty criminal standing in a courtroom who has just received his sentence for some heinous, wicked crimes? The evidence is clear. He is guilty. And the judge gives him one last sentence word before he's taken off to prison. And he starts turning around and pointing out all the misdemeanor infractions of everyone in the room. Speeding ticket, failure to renew your tabs, jaywalker. It's just ridiculous that this guy who is a murderer would say such things, that he has any authority to say such things. And that's what it's like when we walk around pointing out the faults of others when we ourselves aren't right with God. So Jesus says, first, get right with God. Repent of those sins. Get right with him by trusting in Christ, the only person who never sinned, who deserves no judgment. But he took all of that condemnation upon himself for those who trust in him. And then, When he died on the cross and rose from the grave, now he stands in authority as king over all the world, in judgment over everybody. But he also does this really incredible thing, as we'll find out later in the book of Matthew. He makes us his legal representatives here on earth, which leads us into our final point, having correct authority for judgment. Look back at verse 6. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So with verse 6, we have this switch back from the singular you to the plural you, suggesting that Jesus has turned his attention off of the Pharisees themselves and back to all of his disciples following him. It seems at first like he's not that this is a whole new idea, that this is disconnected from verses 1 to 5. What do dogs and pigs and holy pearls have to do with judgment? But I think the shift in audience gives us a little clue that he has switched from condemning the scribes and Pharisees to warning his disciples about their stolen authority. Dogs and pigs were the most unclean animals in Israel. The Old Testament law said that pigs were so unclean, they dig in the dirt, but not just unclean because they're dirty, but because they represent sin. You shouldn't touch them. You shouldn't eat them. And then there's dogs. They just wander around the streets, eating trash, scavenging for food from the filth on the ground. And Jesus now says that the religious leaders who think themselves so pure and holy, the only ones who can enter into God's presence because they are the clean ones, he says they are the dirtiest of all, dogs and pigs, because of their sin. But what is the holy pearl then that we shouldn't give to these dogs and pigs? Well, most commentators would suggest that it's the pearl of the gospel We have this beautiful truth in the gospel, and don't give it to such stubborn people, such spiteful people who are only going to take it and laugh at you and spit in your face, mocking you for your faith in a crucified Savior. These commentators recall Jesus sending his disciples out into the villages around Judea, saying, go and preach the good news to them, and if they welcome you, stay there and teach what I have taught you. And if they don't want you, then shake the dust off your feet and move on to a new city. So don't throw the pearl to them if they don't want it. That kind of makes sense. It's good wisdom, I think, for us. Don't waste all your time arguing with bitter people. But I don't think that fits the context of the passage very well. This whole time, Jesus has been expounding on the law of his kingdom on correct authority in his kingdom. He's been confronting the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who think that they ought to be revered as so holy and powerful. But I think Jesus is telling them, don't give them what they have come for. Don't revere them. Don't respect them. Instead of the gospel, I think the holy pearls here are authority in the kingdom of God. From the beginning of this gospel, Matthew has been saying, Jesus is the rightful king, the rightful ruler. He has all authority in Israel. He is the one who rules over the kingdom, not these guys. They have taken the law and used it for their own gain and abused the people of the kingdom. Don't submit to that anymore. Don't give these dogs the beauty of your submission. The, the gentleness of your heart, the humble attitude of godliness that you have in you. The only other place in the New Testament that mentions a pearl at all is just a few chapters later in Matthew 13, where Jesus gives all the kingdom parables. In verse 45 and 46, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So Jesus says the pearl is the kingdom of God. It's so valuable that we would give everything in this life. We would sell it all. We would give it all up in order to obtain citizenship in his kingdom. And so I think in verse 6 here, the pearl thrown to the pharisaical pigs is authority in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus lambasts the Pharisees for their blind judgment. And he warns now his disciples, don't submit to them. Don't give them the reverence they so hunger for. It just legitimizes it and their stolen authority and they're going to turn around and use it against you. I think this might be the ancient way of saying, don't feed the trolls. If anyone's ever spent some time on the internet, on a Facebook comment thread or blog, You see these internet trolls who show up wanting to show everybody how right they are and how smart they are and how wrong everyone else is. They aren't interested in a productive dialogue to grow in knowledge together. Just want to show off how smart they are. And if you engage them in conversation, it just makes it worse. It seems to legitimize their presence there. They think, oh yeah, now they're all listening to me. Now I have a captive audience. And it empowers them for more criticism. And so the general internet rule is don't feed the trolls. Don't give them what they've come for. If you don't engage with them, then they'll go away. And so Jesus warns his disciples, don't trust these religious rulers and their teaching. Theirs is a stolen authority and a broken teaching. If you submit to them, it's going to hurt you more. Instead... Throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus reveals a whole new authority structure that is for our good. Right at the end of the entire gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, suggesting we can trust him. What a joy to give our allegiance to him. But then what does he do? He says, go, I will be with you. He gives the authority to us to judge the earth. In Matthew chapter 16 and chapter 18, he gives the keys of the kingdom to to the church. He gives the authority to judge who is a member of the kingdom of God to the body of Christ. So we, the church, Jesus' disciples, are handed this incredible authority to judge the world. But we must always do it with an eye to the just judge of all the world. Only with our eyes on him, set in proper authority, under his authority, will we have a respect for the authority we've been given and a respect for the people who are under our care. And so we see that quite opposite of what our culture believes. We should judge. We are commanded to judge. But we should be careful to decide what is right and wrong. To decide what's best for our lives and help others Find the righteousness of God in Christ. But it's really important to do so very carefully in order to become, avoid becoming judgmental trolls instead of wise holders of the keys of the kingdom. So Matthew 7 gives us these three principles for exercising this authority. In verses 1 and 2, he reminds us to check our motives for judging others. Ask yourself, why you feel the need to point out the faults in somebody else? Why do you get so angry with other people? Why do they frustrate you so much and cause you to constantly offer your criticism? Perhaps it has nothing to do with their faults and much more to do with your own sense of guilt and shame before a holy God. If that's the case, we need to get right with God first. Be sure that your reasons for judging others are truly pure and not just covering faults in your own life. Second, let's, from verses three, to, f- 3 through 5, we see that we should examine our own hearts then. Are there things in your own life that you need to deal with before you try to deal with things in someone else's life? Are there attitudes and behaviors in your life that are so obvious to other people that would disqualify you from being careful with the heart of somebody else? In so many ways, people hate our judgments of them, not simply because our judgments are right and it hurts them, but because sometimes we're judgmental jerks about it, or we look like hypocrites, always with eyes on other people and never turning the mirror of the law on ourselves. So we need to get right with God, be honest with our guilt and our shame, and take it to God and seek forgiveness in Christ, and then we'll be more persuasive in our judgments. And finally, remember where your authority to judge comes from in the first place. Jesus Christ is king over all. He is judge over all. We will all stand in judgment before him, and we must remember that before we can ever judge anyone else. We need to ask where, whether he's given us authority to judge somebody else anyway. It's not our job to be walking around and confront everybody who is in our path, as though it's our responsibility to fix every error in society. There are different spheres of authority that God has placed us in, sometimes on top of that authority, sometimes underneath it. Parents and children, pastors and churches, teachers and students, bosses and employers, governments and citizens when we show that we have proper respect for other people's authority, and we humbly show our subordination to Christ in our own lives, then we'll be more effective in wise judgment. So remember when you hear, do not judge, don't judge that you be not judged. When you hear Matthew 7, 1, remember to keep your eyes on Christ. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Remember that you too will stand in judgment and then you will be able to judge wisely with the wisdom of God. Let's pray. God, too often we can be seen as bitter, judgmental hypocrites. I pray that you would fix our eyes on Christ so that our judgments of others would be few, and, but when necessary, they would be wise and helpful and uplifting. God, make us, Redemption City Church, to be a people who are careful with the authorities that you've given us, to be humble under the authorities you've placed us in. Please, God, continue to mold our hearts to be humble, even like Christ, the King of all the world, who humbly said to our Father, not my will, but yours. Make us to be those kind of wise judges. Amen.